Hello and welcome to Off Campus History. I'm your host, Louis Reedwood. Today we're discussing the 1975 film Hester Street and its depiction of Jewish immigration to the United States around the turn of the 20th century. The film is based on an 1896 novella by Abraham Kahan named Yekel, A Tale of the New York Ghetto. The film follows a Jewish immigrant family in 1890s New York City who come into conflict over the extent to which they want to adopt aspects of American culture and the extent to which they want to maintain aspects of the culture they grew up with in Eastern Europe. The film stars Carol Kane and Stephen Keats. Kane was nominated for an Academy Award for her performance. Also worth noting is that much of the film is in Yiddish, which gives us an opportunity to talk about the history of the Yiddish language. Today we dig into the history behind Hester Street, discussing how Jewish immigrants to the United States navigated the process of acculturating in America, the role of Yiddish in Jewish American life at the time, how the Jewish immigrant experience compared to those of other immigrant groups like the Irish, and much more. To discuss all this with me, I'm joined by Miriam Borden. Miriam is a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto specializing in Yiddish studies. She's an expert in the history of the Yiddish language in North America, as well as Jewish culture and history. Miriam has tons of fascinating things to share, and I think you're really going to enjoy the interview. Let's get into it. All right, I'd like to welcome to the podcast a colleague of mine from the University of Toronto, Miriam Borden. Miriam, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about what your research is all about? I know you from the University of Toronto's book history and print culture program. So obviously, I know that's a part of your research. That's a part of my research for sure. Yeah, my research has sort of <laughs> shifted over the years because I, I'm interested in too many things. But I began with looking at early modern Yiddish texts. So these are Yiddish texts produced. The one I was looking at was produced in the early 1600s and has seen multiple, multiple reissues and redactions. And I was looking at this particular book. It's called The Women's Bible. It was a Yiddish version of the Bible, basically, hmm. that it was thought women read. And I was sort of trying to figure out if that was really true. Women being, you know, <laughs> the idea was that women were not as well educated, maybe couldn't read the Bible in Hebrew, which was important for Jewish ritual, and therefore would access the Bible in Yiddish. And actually, turns out it's not really true. This actually is relevant, re relevant to what we're going to talk about today. So anyway, from there, I sort of, <laughs> over the years, now I'm really looking at, I've moved sort of away from books and, and into actually recorded Yiddish audio. So I'm now looking at the Ruth Rubin archive. And the Ruth Rubin archive is an archive of over 2,000 songs, recorded folk songs, Yiddish folk songs, recorded by this incredible and sort of legendary folk song collector called Ruth Rubin, who's from Montreal originally. She went around with a reel-to-reel -reel recorder, lugging this heavy, heavy thing into people's living rooms for... I don't know, a few years and in, in the 40s and the 50s and came out with this incredible archive of, of music that no one has really looked at. So here I am. Here I am. It's still very much an archive. It's still, you know, there's still the printed word, but maybe it's, it's less bookish than maybe it once was, <laughs> my research. It's it's still bookish. Or print, it's, it's print, it's print culture-y anyway. It's print-ish, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I really like studying the history of popular song sheets and stuff like that. So that's something that I've done some research with in the past as well. And they're really, really interesting sources. And so it's a really cool topic. Yeah. And very, uh, very appropriate for our episode today. Before we get into today's topic, how did you decide to focus on Yiddish history? Mm. Well, 
in a way, in a way, I like to say that Yiddish sort of chose me, <laughs> which is just by virtue of the fact that by the time I finished my undergrad at U of T, I remember, you know, when you have to declare your major and your minor, if you have one, the administrator said to me, oh, you know, you have enough credits here for a Yiddish minor. And I said, really, I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's sort of how it, and anyway, and later when I came back to graduate school, I was wondering sort of where to plant myself, what department, what field. And somebody said to me, didn't you used to study Yiddish? And I was like, well, Yiddish sort of found me. <laughs> yeah. No, but then I pursued it in earnest. And I, and I, what, what, what I discovered was that it is this unbelievably rich field of, I mean, you can't just do one thing when you do Yiddish. You do history, you do ethnography, you do linguistics, you do anthropology, you do it all. And, and that's what's so exciting about it to me. So I found Yiddish. I mean, I came to Yiddish anyway. My grandparents were native speakers of the language. They were from Poland, both of them, Holocaust survivors who spoke Yiddish in the house. My mother grew up speaking Yiddish with them and didn't, you know, spoke it a little bit to me growing up. But of course, I didn't grow up in a Yiddish speaking environment. And so the little, the few Yiddish words I knew were sort of, I had an emotional attachment to them, certainly, but but I couldn't really do much else with, the, else with them. Mm-hmm. And then fast forward to the, I uh, guess the 21st century and Yiddish is something you can study in university, which is this unbelievable thing. No one saw that coming. And in the field, it's still quite small, but you know, the more people we get who study the language and immerse themselves in it, the more that field expands in really exciting ways. Yeah. Well, hopefully somebody listening to this podcast will get excited about studying Yiddish and maybe we'll have a, I feel like it's optimistic to think anybody listens to my podcast, but uh <laughs> But, you know, maybe somebody will listen and, and you never know. be interested, uh, hopefully. So some listeners may not know a lot about the differences between Yiddish and Hebrew. So I think maybe we should explain that before we get into the topic today. Could you explain who tends to speak each of these languages and in which contexts? Sure. Yeah, I guess we'll start in the present day. I think today we tend to think of Hebrew. Oh, well, there's Israel. And Israel, you know, people in Israel speak Hebrew. And Yiddish, maybe we think of Hasidic communities, sometimes called ultra-Orthodox Hasidic communities. And I should say that not all Hasidic communities speak Yiddish, but many of them do. That's such a a late sort of recent, you know, division between these languages. For most of the history of Yiddish, which goes back, goes back about a thousand years, the first documented piece of Yiddish writing that we have is on a manuscript from 1272. The language itself is probably a little bit older than that. And what it is basically is a form of medieval German that incorporates elements of Hebrew and Aramaic, which are the two languages of sacred texts in Judaism, Mm -hmm. Hebrew being the language of the Bible and of prayer, and Aramaic being the language of rabbinic commentary, especially the Talmud, which is a central text in Jewish law. Yiddish, you know, Yiddish evolves about a thousand years ago out of Jewish contact with non-Jewish neighbors, Jewish settlement in Germany, mostly. This is why I like to say that to a modern German speaker, Yiddish is sort of like if you encountered Chaucer today and tried to speak English to him Hmm. and tried to communicate, you would sort of understand bits and pieces of what you're both trying to say, but you wouldn't really get the full picture. It's sort of like that. So Yiddish has preserved in many ways some of the grammatical forms, some of the syntax of medieval German in a really interesting way. And yet Yiddish itself is a totally modern language. Yiddish also modernized. And so you have Yiddish developing about a thousand years ago. And like everything in Jewish history, even that's contested, but most people agree. (laughs) It's about a thousand years old. 
And Yiddish sort of follows Jews throughout Europe, throughout, I should say, Eastern Europe. In Spain, you know, Spanish Jews de develop Ladino, which is a different Jewish language. Similar, you know, just sort of similar things where you take Spanish as sort of the foundation and you incorporate elements of Hebrew and Aramaic. But in Eastern European and Central European lands where Jews end up living over the next thousand years, they take Yiddish with them. And Yiddish adopts, um, when Jews start to move further into Slavic lands, Yiddish adopts Slavic components and Slavic vocabulary. A really good example of of what Yiddish is, is the word chulent. Chulent is a traditional Jewish stew, usually eaten on the Sabbath. Chulent, if you parse it, is actually, it comes from chaud and long from the French, from hot and long, mm. a stew that is cooked hot and cooked long. And yet it becomes this this almost Slavic sounding Yiddish word, chulent. And so that's sort of an example of, of how Yiddish sort of comes to be. Meantime, you have Hebrew and Hebrew and Yiddish always coexist. Y Hebrew is, is the language of, like I say, the Bible of prayer. Aramaic is the language of the study house. However, people in the study house are studying Aramaic texts in Yiddish. They're doing it in Yiddish. They're discussing it in Yiddish, right? Mm -hmm. Yiddish is the lingua franca and Yiddish is the language that most people speak. This is true of Eastern and Central European Jews up until the Second World War. You know, 90% of the Jews murdered in the Holocaust were Yiddish speakers. So Yiddish experiences, you know, major attrition after the war. And the story of Yiddish after the war is one of, you know, it's cultural salvage, certainly it's regeneration in some ways. It's also a decline in, in other ways. Right. I think that's really helpful context for people to to understand as we're going to we're going to talk about this film. And a big part of the film is about language, right, which we'll get into. Before we get into that, I think it would be helpful to maybe summarize the plot of the film that we're going to be talking about, which is Hester Street. So Hester Street, a film made in 1975. The main theme of the film is really about cultural anxiety around acculturating for Jewish immigrants in sort of late 19th century New York, right? So the plot of the movie follows this family. It's, it's I think, the, the mid-1890s, and the father of the family, whose name in, I think they immigrated from Russia in this, was Yankel, and then when he, he's, he's come to the United States, and he is very invested in becoming what he sees as like a proper Yankee, right? He he's changed his name to Jake. He has shaved his beard. He's sort of adopted American style dress and all of this stuff. He's also started having an affair with a woman in the United States. And eventually he, he sort of sends his, his wife and son come over to New York as well. So his wife's name is is Giedel and his son's name is Yosele, or at least originally. And he really resents them for, you know, he feels like they're not, I guess, you know, you can interpret exactly why, but it seems like he resents that they kind of remind him of a culture that he has, in his view, sort of moved away from. And he really wants them to adopt American culture, American language, so like English, you know, American styles of dress and all of this stuff. And most of the rest of the movie is about these conflicts because Giedel, in a lot of ways, not every way, but in a lot of ways, she's she's more interested, or at least she, you know, she's just arrived in New York from Europe and 
she's being asked to change all these things about herself and it's not you know it's like a it, it's a pretty unreasonable request it's also clear that like the husband just doesn't really want to be with her anyway because he also is having this affair so they have all these sorts of conflicts over cultural issues over language you know Jake pressures his son to change his name to Joey from from Yosele. I think that's an example. Eventually, the couple ends up divorcing and Jake ends up in a relationship with the woman he was having an affair with. And Gietel ends up with this man named Bernstein, who had been a boarder in their apartment and he's also sort of a like a scholar like you know he's always sort of like reading books and things like that and so he sort of embodies at least some more cultural traditionalism i think although they're you know at the end of the movie they're sort of walking together and it's clear that like Gietel has still changed a bit right she hasn't she hasn't completely stayed the same in in new york that's sort of a a brief overview of the movie is there anything that you want to add to that or is that does that seem like kind of the plot I mean, in a nutshell, that's it. Certainly, I think there's and there's so much to talk about. Yeah, I think it's an interesting kind of feminist film. Mm-hmm. I think it. I think you're totally right. At the end, by the end of the film, yeah, Gitla seems like she has actually sort of become somewhat American, but she's done it on her own terms, which is really interesting. You know, she she wasn't. Yes, you know, Jake pressures her to remove her head covering, her wig, which is traditional for Jewish married Jewish women to cover their hair with a wig which is just sort of repugnant to him. So yes, by the end of the film, she's not she's, no, she's showing her own hair. She's no longer wearing the wig um, or any kind of head covering. She has adopted, you know, fashionable American dress. And she sort of found her ideal man, actually, in Bernstein, yeah. um, who is this quiet, pensive scholar who can teach her child to read Yiddish and teach him in, the, you know, the ways of Judaism, whereas Jake has just jettisoned all of that. In a way, yeah, she found her ideal man, but she also like she did the most in a way she's so much more american than jake because she asks for a divorce like what's more american than getting divorced <laughs> <laughs> you know especially in the 1890s who gets divorced like no one does no one gets divorced right and so and she's the one there's this moment this real kind of empowering moment in the film where they have this big fight and he really he 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 flies off the handle and he storms out of the apartment and her neighbor friend says to her, don't worry, he'll be back that one. And she goes, she looks out the window and she goes, I don't want him back. And it's like, hmm. yes, yes, queen, <laughs> you don't want him back. And and then from that moment on, it's the movie really pivots. And it's all about sort of Gittel asserting herself in her quiet way because she is, you know, her name Gittel means, it comes from the word git or gut, which means good. So there's something in her character that's just, she's good with a capital G, you know, hmm. and there's something about her that in her quiet and capital G good way, she asserts herself. And by the end, you know, she says, I want a divorce. She makes the divorce happen. She gets a fair amount of money from Jake and his mistress to make the divorce happen, to pay all the legal fees and everything, much more than anybody expects she'll actually get. So so she's in her quiet, you know, timid sort of meek way. She asserts herself as a real American lady. And that's the irony, I think, of the the whole film that you know Jake is trying desperately to be American and he he's stumbling over this horrible accent horrible I mean horribly executed <laughs> accent in the film he is stumbling he, he uses all kinds of American slang and he's he's just uh, he's totally changed his appearance he's totally changed his ideals he's you know he's a different person than the guy she married 
And yet she turns out to be, I think, like the most American figure in the entire film. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good point. I think that it's also an interesting theme that you can think about, about like what it means to be an American. Does it mean sort of adopting all of the cultural things that you come into in the United States? Or does it mean you get to retain aspects of your culture from where you've come from and you bring that and exactly a big part of American identity or American culture is like the blending of all these different different cultures together. Exactly. It's to define what it is to be American for your own self. And that may be different from what it is, you know, to the next person. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting film. And language itself is one of the key conflicts in the film, right? The conflict over Jake wants Kittle and their son to learn English, take English names, that kind of thing. Obviously, he, as you said, he's using English, even English slang. He's taken up the name Jake for himself. And Gittel is more hesitant about that. Can you talk a little bit about the role of Yiddish in Jewish American life at this time? So this is, in this movie, it's sort of the, the roughly the turn of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So, like I say, you know, Yiddish is the language most people speak. And so they come to America where would they have learned English, right? They're learning English from each other. They're going to maybe night school. They're maybe a later kind of development. They're, they're certainly, I can tell you this, speaking of books and book history, there we have these books that are called Briefensteller. Briefensteller means they're sort of like letter writing how-to books that are in Yiddish and in English. And they show you in Yiddish how to write a formal letter to different you know, different, different kinds of people, different tone, different format, you know, and how to, how to write an invitation to a party, how to write a thank you note, how to, you know, and so on and so on. And it's like a whole book full of these things. Mm -hmm. So people are learning Yiddish because earlier immigrants who came to America are sort of helping, helping their countrymen learn English, but everybody's really operating in Yiddish for the most part. Certainly you get your Jakes and you have your Gittles, like definitely, you know, and everything in between. You have people who really want to acculturate, but it's really difficult. You have people who find it easier. You have, you know, different people are different. People handle the immigration differently. People of different means handle the immigration differently, of course. What's interesting about the film, I think, is that it all takes place on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Yeah. So we only get really one snapshot of one little place and how everything played out in that one little place. And the truth, I mean, it was incredibly dense and that is where people really landed, you know, landing in Ellis Island, they would sort of go straight to the Lower East Side where there was this community of people from across Europe. And despite that, they, they form one cohesive Jewish community because they're all Jews. And you see that in the film too. Mamie, who's Jake's, you know, girlfriend is Polish. So she's sort of a different sort. Jake and Gittel and their son, are from the Russian Empire, so they're they're also sort of different, right? Which I suppose <laughs> we should also say when they say they're from Russia, you know, we're talking about the 1890s, so it's before the fracturing of you know these big old empires, is before the First World War. So what all this means, you know, is sort of Poland always had a certain sort of interesting special status within the Russian Empire. It's clear to me that, like, for example. Jake and Gittel come from what we call the Pale of Settlement, which is this highly restricted place where people lived. It was it was it was highly restricted because it was it was designated as the Jewish space of of you know habitation, and uh, they were restricted in what sort of clothing they could wear. So clothing is a big thing, mm. not just in when they get to the Lower East Side, right? It's a big thing in Jewish life. 
you know what how you look to a great extent determines who you who you are is determined by how you look and how you dress uh, there were restrictions on what they could wear at, at various points in history there were restrictions on where they could live restrictions on what sort of jobs they could do so all this to say you know when they say like we they're from russia they're from this like really complex jewish society that is really restricted and then they come to the lower east side where it's this almost like a microcosm of america where you have all these different jews from all over eastern europe with different kinds of experiences and all thrown into the Lower East Side together and they're all speaking Yiddish and, you know, German Jews are considered something different. They are part of a different immigration and they don't speak Yiddish, right? So there's this, this, there's a class thing to do with Yiddish. Hmm. Typically, you know, between 18, let's say 1882 till about 1924, when the U.S. sets quotas on immigration that effectively end Jewish immigration, I think the quota is something like 10,000 per year that effectively ends the immigration, the mass immigration, two million Jews from the Russian Empire come to America in that period. Mm-hmm. Most of them are speaking Yiddish, and they're considered in general to be a a poorer group of immigrants, a less educated group of immigrants, and certainly a Yiddish speaking group of immigrants, more traditional in many ways, uh, more provincial, you know, not city dwellers. That's That's who's coming. And that's who Jake is when he arrives on the shores, you know, of New York. And that's who Gittel and Yosela are, certainly. We're talking about the role of Yiddish. Yeah, Yiddish is a major feature of Jewish life. You, you know, you can see not just the Briefensteller, these letter writing guides, but you can open a Yiddish newspaper from the 1890s and see ads for American products in Yiddish. So the world around them is being filtered through a Yiddish lens. Yeah. You also see, though, in a lot of those ads, for example, what we call Yinglish. You see Ameri- you see English words written out in Yiddish letters. So there's, which is sort of a transitional, you don't see that for a very long time. You see that in the early part of the 1900s and you see that, you know, into the 20s and less so as you move through the 30s and 40s because people have gone to school, they've sent their kids to school, they're learning English through their kids, through the public school system of the United States, right? So you start to, English is sort of a transitional phase between these two languages as people are, they're in America, they're trying very hard to 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 learn English and sort of be American, but they're still seeing the world through Yiddish lenses and hearing the world through Yiddish, you know, speaking ears in a way. Right. Yeah, I was thinking about, you know, you mentioned Yiddish newspapers when I already did a little bit of research to find some, you know, interesting, I always put up some interesting pictures and things like that related to the topic of the podcast. And I found a really huge collection from the New York Public Library of Yiddish theater posters from this period, which was which is quite neat to see. Yeah, I should say also entertainment is a is a huge Yiddish entertainment is a major feature of Jewish life. The Yiddish theater is this sort of small but mighty. <laughs> it's like a small phenomenon with, with a ton of heart. <laughs> and, you know, Yiddish Yiddish theater is also the roots of, I mean, Hollywood as we know it. So it's it's major as when we think about American entertainment, it really all starts with the Yiddish theater. Hmm. But the Yiddish theater, there are plays people go to see. There are musical reviews. There are, you know, high art theater. There are literary works that adapted into Yiddish Yiddish literary works, sorry, they're adapted for the stage. People go to the theater to get a sense of home, to hear Yiddish, to get, you know, for, for cultural enrichment, to feel like they're engaging with the arts in some way. And that and that has such lofty, you know, associations for people in this period who aren't really educated, right? Mm-hmm. The idea, the arts, the arts, it, you know, it, it's, it's how you become an educated citizen of the world, just through the arts. So yeah, the Yiddish theater is a really big deal. Yiddish journalism, Yiddish publishing, 
Yiddish, you know, fiction writing, all this is exploding. Yiddish culture is this huge force, both in Europe, you know, pre-World War Europe, and in America. People, you know, they, they sort of grow up as these sort of twin cultures, you know, Yiddish culture in Europe and Yiddish culture in America, where you have very similar things happening in terms of, you know, publishing explodes on both sides of the ocean, music and theater and plastic arts explode, but they sort of have different characters, right? Poetry takes a sort of different direction in America than, than the direction that Yiddish poetry takes in Europe and so on. So yeah, entertainment, they're being entertained in Yiddish, they're, but they're, there's nothing stopping them going to the English theater, you know? There's nothing, sure. but but it's home, it's familiar. And it's and, and when you're so far away from home, it's something that, that feels, you know, comfortable. That makes a lot of sense, I think. And it's not unique to... Jewish immigrants to to the United States, right? Sort of every immigrant community has some aspects, right, of, of seeking to acculturate and some aspects of, you know, preserving elements of the culture they've brought with them. Mm-hmm. This may not be a question that you can actually answer. I, I feel like it, it may be an impossible question to answer. But I'm curious about if one of these perspectives, the Jake perspective or the Kittle perspective, is more common you think historically than the other do you think it's more it was more common for in this period jewish immigrants sort of yiddish speakers to seek to sort of adopt american culture in in jake's view sort of quote unquote fit in in the united states or would it have been more common to seek to you know preserve elements of of the culture that you've brought with you i think it is an impossible question because i think I think the answer is yes and no. I think the answer is both. Yeah. You know, and I think the choice of how much to embrace American culture and how much to sort of hold back and, you know, retain and, and maintain your own, you know, culture really is such a personal choice. Mm-hmm. It's it's one that is determined by education and means, certainly, but also just what you're comfortable with. So I think I think you had the Jakes, you had the Giddles for sure. And then you sort of have the unstoppable force of just time. <laughs> mm. And the longer people are in America, the more American they become, you know? And I think it's something that just, you can't escape. So, you know, even though someone like Gittel, by the end of the film, is going to open up a, like a store, right? A dry goods store with her new husband. Yep. You know, you sort of, you see, like something, that that kind of thing happened a lot. People open, it becomes, in fact, it becomes sort of a, a caricature of of Jewish American culture, you know, the my son with the dry goods store, and these, you know, Gittel sort of becomes like, yeah, almost like a caricature. But this certainly happened. It was a way for people to plant themselves and start to build themselves up. And I think as they found a way, you know, as you move from being like a border, like a rootless, wandering, you know, border who has no real home, you move to being the owner of a store. You, you begin to set down roots, you, you go from rootless to rooted. And I think as that happens, you become part of the landscape in a way. And I think, you know, it, it becomes, it, it feels less unnatural the longer you're there. And I think time really, really had that kind of effect on people. The other thing too, I think that makes, what I think what's important to remember about the Jewish immigration to the U.S. in this time was what sort of distinguishes it from, we know, this is a, a period of mass immigration, right, from all over the world. But what distinguishes, a couple of things that distinguish the Jewish immigration is it, there's a family nature to it. So you often had people who immigrated, usually, like in this case, you'd have the man who would go ahead 
the father of the house would go ahead and make some money and then send for his wife and child. I should also say sometimes that never happened and he would just abandon them. And you had a real problem with abandoned wives and children. Hmm. But something that would happen was that the men would go ahead, send for the wife and children a few years later. And so you had entire families immigrating instead of just sort of the man coming over to work for a while, earning some money and then going back to go live in his home country. That didn't really happen so much because Jews were fleeing oppression of all kinds, economic, religious, ethnic. I mean, they were, they were fleeing all kinds of oppression. Uh, there was nowhere to go back to. So you have entire families migrating, you have, or immigrating, you have a very low rate of return, of reverse migration. And these things also, you know, when you, when you have nowhere to go back to, the wherever you've landed becomes your new home. And I think it becomes difficult to, of course, you're going to be culture shocked. Anybody, you know, would be culture shocked, but it becomes difficult to continue to rail against it, you know, when, when this is your home now. So you guys have to make the most of it. Hmm. And, you know, you see in archival documents, for example, of synagogues that were founded by people when they first arrived, which are often one of the first things that they, they found a synagogue. Everything's in Yiddish. All the minutes from all the meetings and all the committees are in Yiddish. All the signage is in Yiddish. All the receipts are in Yiddish. And slowly, slowly, that changes. And then there's some Yinglish introduced. And then a couple of decades later, everything's in English. You know, the Yiddish newspaper in Toronto, actually, the Toronto, it's called the Yiddish Journal, the, the Daily Hebrew Journal. You see that. You see, you know, Yiddish, 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 until about, I want to say the 1940s. And then all of a sudden, toward the end of its run in the 1970s, you have a few Yiddish pages and the rest of the whole paper is in English, right? Mm. That, to me, is instructive of people's feelings about you know, being here. If you if you exist in Yiddish, you exist in your language that is not English, that is not, you know, an American language for a certain amount of time, that's going to ultimately become a barrier, right? Once you break down that barrier, you become a lot more at home where you are. And I think Yiddish documents from the period and just the, the institutional history of various Jewish institutions kind of tell that same story of initial discomfort, which is Again, comment, I think all immigrant groups, initial discomfort, but here we are, we're making the most of it, you know, and eventually they, they find their place. One thing that really struck me in your comments there is this interesting theme that I, I wanted to get into about, you know, maybe what people's relationship to where they came from is like. Mm. You know, some of my research is about Irish American history. And obviously, Irish American immigrant or immigration is also happening at huge rates during this period. The cultural context is quite different because the vast majority of them can speak English and, and things like that, right? So, so it's a quite a different experience. But a lot of Irish Americans come to the United States and have a strong feeling about their homeland in some way. A lot of them hope to return at some point. Actually, very few of them do, but at least at, when they come, a lot of them hope to return at some point. A lot of them, maybe even if they never return, they have strong sort of emotional ties to Ireland and participate, for example, in sort of like emigrant nationalist politics, sort of movements to liberate Ireland from, from the British from afar. Mm -hmm. And so this particular film is really interested in this sort of historiographical question about like the melting pot, mm -hmm. where to what extent do 
these characters in the film seek to sort of quote unquote melt into the society in which they're immigrating. But at least in more recent scholarship that I've seen about Irish Americans, much of that is sort of a, it's, it's not like a, an uninteresting question anymore, but a lot of the scholarship is, is now transitioning to be somewhat more interested in not just what happens when you show up here, wherever here is, but also what are your relationships to the place that you came from? Mm-hmm. And I'm curious what that's like for Jewish American history. Can you comment on that? Yeah. So I want to say that there's not much sort of national affinity for the places these people come from. And part of that has to do, I think part of that has to do with, you know, the, for generations, <laughs> these people were persecuted. Not everybody was always persecuted everywhere all the time, right? I don't want to say that. And not everybody felt the persecution all the time. You know, I don't know if a Jew in Poland in, uh, I don't know, 1894 felt like like he was oppressed. I don't know if that's true, right? But I know that in general, there was, you know, the Jewish question was a question in Europe for a long time. And the great empires didn't know what to do with their Jews. The Jews were always this sort of outlier. They were always this problem. They were this thing to deal with. They were different. They were not Christians. They were, you know, they were, they had their own way of doing things. They were this sort of civilization within Europe and no one really knew what to do with them. So they were never, there was always a sense that the Jews were different. And I think even at the most welcoming and sort of accepting times, you know, in history when Jews were really part of the fabric of Europe and they were part of the fabric of Europe, but they were the part of the fabric of Europe in this way that they were exceptional. And this is true. This is true for probably for all of Jewish settlement in Europe. This is, this is true for, for a very, very long time. So I don't know if there's, it's not to say that, you know, my, for example, my own grandparents who are both Polish, not to say they didn't feel Polish. They felt Polish and they felt Polish because of European nationalism, which is really, as you know, right from your own work, a giant marketing campaign in every European country to make their people feel like they were Irish or they were English or they were Polish or they were Russian, right? This is an invention of European romanticism. This is an invention of the 19th century. And yeah, certainly I think at certain points in time, Jews felt, I feel I am Lithuanian, you know, I am Polish, I am this, I am that. But I think by the time they made the choice to leave, think they, they felt so alienated. They felt so, whether the political situation just, they saw storm clouds or whether, whether because of pogroms, which is part of the reason people like our characters, Jake and Gittel, and, and Mamie, all these people congregating the Lower East Side in the 1890s, part of the reason they've left is because of really violent pogroms in the Russian Empire that have devastated Jewish communities. And, and it's political and it's economic and, you know, the Jews are blamed for the assassination of the Tsar. And so that sets up a wave of pogroms. You know, in general, Jews feel like they're being squeezed in the Russian Empire and in the 1890s. And they leave with not a whole lot of love for the Russian empire that they're leaving behind, you know? Mm. So I don't think, and, and what sort of develops around the, around the, this time in the 1890s, in the 1880s, even what does develop is a sense of Jewish nationhood, you know, right, right. As all the European nations are embarking on their sort of, you know, nationalist campaigns and asserting their own, you know, nationhood, the nation state, it becomes the most important thing. Jews also feel like, well, wait a minute, we are, we too, we are a distinct nation. Shouldn't we be entitled to our own nationhood? 
And some people believed, you know, we are defined by the diaspora. We are defined by the fact that we live in all these different places, and yet we are one people. Those, those are the diasporas. This is around the time you have the beginnings of Zionism, the idea that the Jewish homeland is in the land of Israel, the biblical land of Israel, and Jews have a right to return to it and self-govern. But, but diasporism says, no, we are... We haven't been there 2,000 years. We are who we are because we've been away from that place. We should just be, you know, we are the Jewish nation within Europe, or we are the Jewish nation within wherever. So there was disagreements, you know, about what does it mean to be a Jewish nation? Does it mean, you know, does it mean you have your own nation that you are, you know, in love with and that embraces you? Or does it mean that you are sort of a citizen of the world, a global citizen, because the world is your home? And you have sort of all kinds of ideas, everything in between those two poles. And, you know, in a way, you know, one answer certainly is to go to Israel and start building the Jewish state. And people do that. And people do that in increasing numbers throughout the 1880s to the 1920s and to the 40s. And then you have the establishment of the state in 1948. Plenty of people don't go, though. Plenty of people say, no, we're going to make our home somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And they become attached in new ways to places like America places like Canada, the places where they settle. But I I wouldn't say there's a whole lot of love for the places they leave behind in general. I want to say something, I don't know if you know this, but it's really interesting. And this may help to kind of illustrate the the sense of Jewish nationalism that existed and sort of its character. The Yiddish press covered extensively, covered what was happening in Ireland Hmm. because they were, you know, reintroducing Irish as a language of literature. This is something that Jews were doing. They were writing Yiddish literature in starting in the 1880s and, and really they were really the Yiddishists, those people who believed in sort of you know the national the potential of yiddish the language to have this sort of nationally defining character they really sympathized with what was happening in ireland and really believed you throw off the yoke of the crown and be and be irish and be who you are so they actually covered everything that was happening in ireland pretty extensively because they were like you know emotionally invested in it i hope that maybe that gives you a sort of a sense of <laughs> where their loyalties you know were but on the other hand america became this wonderful home this embracing kind of place they found well i should say what they found in america was ultimately the freedom to kind of establish themselves establish their communities in a way that they could never do it in a place like the russian empire so america becomes they call it the golden in medina which means the golden land it becomes this place where you know anything is possible they really buy into the american dream in a big way and i think they help to shape it mm-hmm. and People do become American, they, and they feel American, and they probably feel more American than they ever felt Russian. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a way that America feels like it's embracing them, despite anti-Semitism, and there was plenty of that. There was pl- there were plenty of ways where Jews were not allowed into sort of the institutions and the the culture, the fabric of the culture of America. So they sort of made their own, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And yet, even that, I think, had a sense of, well, we're being embraced here in a way that we were not at home. So I think, so home, home is an interesting word for these people. Yes, that makes a, a lot of sense that it would be, it would be quite a different answer than Irish Americans or, or, you know, I, I mean, I feel like every immigrant group is going to have a slightly different relationship to where they've come from, right? Obviously, this is, it's quite a distinct story. But I, so I think the comparison is very interesting. That's also very interesting, that story about the Jewish press covering language revivals in Ireland, which are in this period, like right, really the turn of the 20th century picking up speed. That's quite interesting. I didn't know about that. Yeah. There's this famous line that everybody in Yiddish studies knows. Yiddish is a language without an army and a navy. Right. Right. 
So Yiddish is this landless language that yet has this national kind of character to it. And then the nation is contained in the language. That, that sort of gets back to your earlier questions about, you know, let's talk about language in the film. Yiddish in this period for these people, it, 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 it becomes sort of a container for nationhood hmm. and, a, and a stand-in for place, right? Place isn't so important. Language is really important. That's a really interesting point, that language... Yeah, especially, you know, when when you're physically dispersed over many, many, many different places, what sort of binds your community together language? Exactly. That's really interesting. Speaking more about, you know, language maybe binding a community together. One thing that really struck me about this film, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this film is that a lot of the film is actually in Yiddish. Yeah, yeah. Much of the film, not the whole film, but much of the film is... Yiddish dialogue with English subtitles. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the history of Yiddish filmmaking. Mm. Yeah, Yiddish filmmaking. There's a history of Yiddish filmmaking in Poland that I think is important for understanding the impact of Yiddish film in general. In 1937, this is just one example. In 1937, Michal Wasinski is this young Polish director. He directs this film called The Dybbuk, which is this sort of almost like the original Yiddish horror movie. It's It's like a... A dibbuk is a soul, the soul of a, of a deceased person that inhabits the body of a living person. And the, the film is about, you know, sort of um, star-crossed lovers and, and a soul that is trying to, you know, find its place. And it's this landmark Yiddish film. Michal Wasinski, he survives the war, you know, fast forward through Second World War, displacement, Michal Wasinski appears in the American canon as the director of The Fall of the Roman Empire, 1964, Sophia Loren. Hmm. So, you know, that's the impact, for example, of, of Yiddish filmmaking in an American film. And that's Yiddish filmmaking in Poland and how it sort of crosses the ocean and finds its way to the U.S. Yiddish film in America. Yiddish film in America doesn't have much of, a, much of an exciting history, to be quite honest. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't. And I think... This sort of speaks to maybe the allure of America and English and being American. You know, like I said, the Yiddish theater was this incredible force. I mean, to give you another example of how the Yiddish theater impacts American entertainment, Jacob Adler, a very famous Yiddish theater actor, his daughter, Stella Adler, was a famous, very famous. She grew up on the Yiddish stage. She was an actor on the Yiddish stage. Then she became an acting coach who coached Robert De Niro. Marlon Brando, just oh, wow. to name two. Like, if you want to talk about the impact of Yiddish theater and Yiddish performing arts, we don't have to go back very far and you don't have to look very hard. It's right there. Yiddish filmmaking, though, in America, for the most part, I think these people who came from the Yiddish stage sort of took what they knew from, from theater and moved it sort of seamlessly right into American film. They became, you know, Amer especially American old Hollywood is full of people Yiddish speakers, Jews from Eastern Europe. And like, it's not just American film, it's American music, American fashion. I mean, these people just kind of filtered into American society in the ways that they could, despite the limitations, despite anti-Semitism. They found ways to kind of assert themselves as Americans and bring what they knew from their training in the Yiddish theater or, you know, or in Yiddish art, Jewish art, and bring it into sort of this, this new and burgeoning industry that they were really helping to create. So yes, there are Yiddish films. The last, I think, Yiddish, the last film that featured Yiddish, I think it's from 1951. 
like, I mean, of this era, of this earlier era, sure, of yeah, course, yeah, yeah. because this film we're talking about is 1975. But the last one is sort of of this real moment, I think it's from the 50, 51, and it's called Catskill Honeymoon. And it really only has a couple lines of Yiddish comedy that's part of like a, a cabaret show in one of these big old Catskill hotels, these big old Jewish Catskill resort hotels that existed up there in upstate New York. And they just a bit of Yiddish comedy and there's some subtitles. But Yiddish film, there's lots of Yiddish film. The thing is, I don't know how much of it survived the war, hmm. especially because so much of the industry was really happening in Poland. There's the national, I believe it's called the National Registry, Jewish Film Registry. And there are people who work on restoring old Yiddish films. And, and there are plenty, there are Yiddish films. They mostly, they're produced in Poland for Polish-speaking Jewish audiences. They're filmed in Poland. They're like very, it's very Polish industry. You know, after the war, these two comedians, Jig and Schumacher, who were these famous luminaries of, of the Yiddish scene in Lodz in Poland, or in Polish, it's called Wuj, the city. They were so famous for their, they had this sort of Abbott and Costello, like that's, that's who they were. They were so famous. And after the war, they come, they survive, they escaped the Soviet Union. They come back and they make this film in Yiddish called Inzer Kinder, which is Our Children. And it's really about, it's sort of, it focuses on this orphanage it's sort of a fictional story, but it actually features real kids who really were orphaned and live in this orphanage oh, wow. in Poland after the war. So Yiddish film sort of, yeah, it's shaped certainly by, it's shaped by, I think, the sort of relative liberalism of the 1920s and 30s. And then to a great extent is shaped by, you know, picking up the pieces after the war and sort of seeing, yeah, unfortunately, Yiddish film is sort of this, bright but very short-lived phenomenon hmm. yeah as is the case with so much of <laughs> yiddish history it burns bright but short <laughs> it's interesting to think about yiddish film sort of in light of what we were saying about language because you know we were saying language is really important and sort of a, to a national identity and so is media and you know i study media history one of the things a lot of media scholars have to say, right, is that a big part of having a national identity is essentially like consuming some shared media, right? In Canada, this is sort of the part of the point of the CBC and things like that, yeah. is that we, we have some some common media we consume. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's interesting. I feel like for some immigrant communities, you know, if you see a decline in the amount of their own sort of media spaces, that often tends to correlate with like an increase in acculturation into mm -hmm. the culture more broadly. And it sounds like maybe that that is also true of, you know, sort of the Jewish American community as you see sort of a decline in consumption of Yiddish film, you know, Yiddish theater, that sort of thing, a decline in the amount of Yiddish in Jewish newspapers. You're also seeing like a greater sense of sort of melting into the melting pot in some sense. Mm -hmm. You're also seeing, though, like what's interesting about Jewish culture is the way that it, like we were saying a minute ago, it filters through the sort of American system and becomes really American. It becomes sort of like yeah. there's certain things that become hallmarks of American culture that are, you know, you go back and you look at the history that were invented by Jews, created by Jews, introduced by Jews. And that's how, that's what happens. Jewish culture doesn't just sort of disappear as it, as it fades into America, it becomes American culture. Of course. And that's, what's really interesting, right? You know, and that's true. Of course, that's true of so many pizza is so American, right? All kinds of things are so American and they're not at all American actually, but they are, they are, and they're not right. They come to yeah. America and they become American in certain way and they become translated into sort of an American idiom. 
but the thing about Yiddish culture, certainly, yeah, you see a decline in the in in Yiddish in the like you say the production of Yiddish media materials, but you see this huge increase in the production of you know American film, right? And and how many Yiddish speaking Jews are actually behind the scenes of all this American film? Tons. Yep. So so, in many ways, you know, American culture smacks of Jewish culture in many ways, especially mid-century American culture. Okay, I have a specific example. Yeah, go for it. Leo Rostin. Leo Rostin, R-O-S-T-E-N, gave us this beautiful, magical, amazing book called The Joys of Yiddish in 1968. It's sort of like a dictionary because it's just full of Yiddish, alphabetized Yiddish words or phrases that have made their way in some ways into America or into like a Jewish way of thinking in America that sort of has adopted been adopted by Americans and become sort of American. I don't know how how else to explain it. It's this sort of a lexicon. It's sort of like a dictionary of Yiddish words of Yiddish words people like know like. But it's a it's 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 comedy. It's a it's a it's a farcical kind of dictionary. You do get definitions, but you know it's like words words that have sort of become schmuck and putz and schlamazel and things like that, and also more lesser known you know Yiddish words. But it's this amazing book. It's it's hilarious. But Leo Rostin, before he puts out Joys of Yiddish, he's actually, he's a humorist, he's a writer, he's a screenwriter, speaking of the influence of Yiddish-speaking Jews in Hollywood. He wrote a series of stories published in The New Yorker in the 1930s about this character he invented, this fictional character called Hyman Kaplan, who's this Eastern European Jewish immigrant who comes to America and takes English classes at night in this adult education school. And with all these other immigrants, some of them Jews and some of them not. And the comedy is in, you know, is in the language and, you know, he really doesn't have a good handle on English and he has an accent that's sort of a hindrance for him. And that book almost won the National Book Award. Hmm. Or, sorry, rather, the, the the stories were collected, I should say, later on and, and, and published as two books and they almost won the National Book Award. That's the influence of, you know, that's, the, these are, these are people who, the immigrant experience resonates with so many Americans because it's this land of immigrants what I'm trying to say, it's a roundabout way of saying the decline in Yiddish media is not an indication of the kind of influence and of the health of sort of Jewish media in general. And I can't say that there's like one particular thing, like all Jews tune into this TV show, all Jews listen to this radio show. No, because the Jewish experience is too diverse for that. Yeah. But people who spoke Yiddish at home or whose parents spoke Yiddish at home influenced and shaped American entertainment to to such a degree. I mean, there are there are books written on it already. I don't have to write them. <laughs> you can go read them. Yep. There are so many books on it. One of them is actually by Andrea Most from the English department at U of T. She wrote a great book about Jews in Hollywood. Hmm. It's something that you sort of have to, you consume American culture and you consume American media and you look at the history and you say, why are all these, why are there so many Jews in American entertainment? Her book is one answer to that. And she goes back and talks about the Yiddish theater and the way that, you know, these people created family in the Yiddish theater, the way that the same way that if you if you talk to actors today, they talk about, you know, being in the theater, it's like having a family. Well, yeah, because often so much (laughs) so much of what it was to be in the theater was to actually act alongside your family. You had in the Yiddish theater, you had actors who were married to each other. You had actors who were, you know, parents and children and things like that. So this is just I don't know. I've said it enough. I think I've made my point. <laughs> no, yeah, I think that's a really important point. I think it, it's well, well taken. Obviously, decline in Yiddish does not necessarily mean, or decline in Yiddish use does not necessarily mean a decline in like Jewish American culture, obviously, more generally. And 
I think you make a really important point that people don't just, when they immigrate to a particular country, it's not just the country that has an effect on them. They also shape the culture where they've come from, right? And and obviously the culture of the United States, we could also say this about Canada, mm-hmm. is so much of our cultures are characterized by the fact that some influence from so many different immigrant communities, bringing elements of their culture and, and into the sort of bigger picture culture. Right. I want to talk for a moment about just the just the look of the film, what you thought of the film more generally in terms of the style of filmmaking, I guess. I'm no film expert, despite the fact that I've made a bunch of podcasts about films, apparently. <laughs> but I thought this was a really cool looking film because for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's sort of filmed in the style of a very early movie, right? The sort yeah. of the aesthetic of the film, it sort of looks like, you know, it's got that like little like piano music in the background and right. there is obviously talking and stuff in it. So it's not like a silent film, but it kind of looks like a silent film. It does. Looks. Yeah. And it's got, I thought, good costumes and props. And at least from my perspective, really did a good job of like capturing the look of the 1890s and also what a film from the very early days of film would look like. Yeah. What were your thoughts on that? I agree. I agree. And something that critics have praised the film for, critics then when it first came out and critics now who kind of, it was re-released or restored, I think, in 2020. And so there's sort of a whole wave of people kind of experiencing the film all over again or for the first time now. And something that people are really, really like is the amazing attention to detail in the set decoration. You know, if you go to the Tenement Museum in New York on the Lower East yeah, Side today. I have been there, yeah. Right? It very much looks like the set of, it looks like Jake and Gittel's apartment. Yeah. And the set decorators are very careful about, you know, meticulously decorating these sets to look, they were trying to basically create a film that looked like the photos that people were familiar with from the period. And I think they accomplished it. And, you know, it's an, it was an independent film. And I think that's important too, to note that Joan Micklin Silver, this was her first of all, she was a, I think this was her debut, directorial debut, I think. Yes, yes. Right? And they couldn't get funding for the film. They ended up self-funding it. And it was an independent film. And it was sort of traveling through the indie circuits. People weren't really interested in it. And then all of a sudden got all this attention because I think it was like a chance meeting, a chance somebody they knew was sort of whispering into the ears of, of the Academy. And... What happened was Carol Kane, who plays Gittel, was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, which was kind of this like surprise nomination that she did not expecting and nobody was expecting because it was just this little tiny independent film. And so, yeah, for an indie film, yeah, like it's it's an in- a self-funded indie film. Yeah, it did really well in the box office, actually, you know, for similar films in a sort of its category. And, and people really liked it for exactly the reasons that you pointed out, that it feels kind of authentic in this kind of I'm using air quotes it feels sort of authentic yeah if we could think about you know a film from the 1890s the costumes feel authentic so much of it feels authentic and I think that's something that audiences really responded to and something that I think resonates with us today yeah I, I really like the look of the film and I do think you know it's it's cute there, there's sort of the like these breaks in between the drama that have no dialogue it's just sort of street scenes of the Lower East Side or you know people sort of living their lives and there's this little like ragtime music, this plinky plonky kind of ragtime music. Yeah. And you're just like, wow, this really does feel like a silent film that they've added music to, right? Mm-hmm. But really, it's 1975. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it was really cool. I think one thing I like about the visuals of the movie is that a lot of the time when people make movies about history, either everything is really beautiful and nice or everything looks kind of grimy and not nice, you know? Right. And it's, it's sort of like completely one or the other. Right. And I feel like this movie actually did a really good job of capturing like this immigrant family doesn't have like a ton of money so you know they live in a small apartment and things like that but that doesn't mean they have nothing nice you know what i mean and, and, right. and so I, I thought that it sort of did a a nice job of capturing that i think yeah yeah and i think i think you're making a really good point which is that i think we tend to think of this period as like they were poor they had nothing it was so hard but also in america there's it's in a place so dense as new york there's this amazing variety. There's like choice out there. You can go, and there, at one point, one of the characters in the film says this to Giddle, you know, that you don't have to buy your things from a peddler on the street. You can go into a store and buy things in a store, right? Like there's, there's like, there's options. You're in the city now and there are options. And just like today, we can go to Dollarama or we can go somewhere else. You know, there are, as a consumer, you have options and there are choices and there are ways to kind of establish your life and you know, furnish your home and 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 dress yourself. You don't. They don't all look the same. And I think that's something that is easy to kind of because maybe because I wonder if it's because of the relatively small number of photos from the time hmm. that we sort of think, oh, this is how people looked. But there's only actually one photo. You know what I mean? Yeah. But but I agree. There's there's a there's a kind of there's a variety of experience that I think is reflected in the film in a way that I just really really like. Yeah. Yeah. As a historian of Yiddish, what was your favorite thing about this movie? And if you could change something about it, what would you like to change? You get, you get to be the director for one choice. I get to direct? Yeah. I loved, I really loved Gittel, and I didn't think I would like her. I loved her. I loved the feminist streak. I love the way the film really doesn't valorize to be, the process of becoming an American. Yeah. And actually what what we sort of, your your sympathies at the end of the film really lie with Gittel and her sense of self, that she's going to preserve. She's going to come to America, but she's still Gittel. Mm -hmm. You know, she's going to come to America. And sure, by the end of the film, she concedes, she corrects somebody who says her son's name is Yosela. She goes, no, his name is Joey. And at first she was very resistant to that, right? Yep. When Jake says, no, his name is Joey now. But by the end of the film, she's like, no, you know what? His name is Joey. She kind of gets it. And she's going to come to America and she's still Gittel, but she's in a new version of Gittel. She's going to become American Gittel on her own terms. And I, I, I think there's a lot of dignity in that. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's not all or nothing. And I think that's the kind of meaningful and profound message of the film of what it is to become an American. It's not all or nothing. You know, I love that. That's, that's the truest, that's the truest thing about what it is to be American or be Canadian. It's not all, it's, it's, it's multiple things that make us who we are. And you don't ever have to just like give it all up the way Jake has just jettisoned the whole thing. It's not really necessary. And it's not, I think, how people truly live their lives. Mm -hmm. I think we always, you know, retain a little bit of and preserve a little bit of, of the things that are important to us. So I love that about the film. If I could change something about the film, I think the film lacks context. And what I mean by that is there's this moment in the film where they go to the park and it seems to me like they've gone to Central Park or something, somewhere that's far enough away because I think Gidel complains about having to go far away mm. from the Lower East Side to get to this place. And there's this beautiful green park. Central Park seems like it's far enough away to be, it's a schlep, you know? Yeah. And 
<laughs> and um, Jake is going on about being American and, you know, here, who was I in Russia? You're just a Jew. But in America, you can be anybody, you know? He goes, look at me. I could, do I look Jewish to you? I could be a Gentile, you know? And she goes, tell me, Jake, where are the Gentiles? <laughs> and she kind of calls him out. He's all like, in America, you can be whoever you want. Don't I look like a Gentile? She's going, I don't see any Gentiles around. And what she's doing, she's pointing out the fact that he he talks this big talk about being an American and, you know, I'm not that kind of Jew anymore. I'm a new person. And she's like, I don't actually see, all we see are Jews. All we see, we live in the Lower East Side and all we see are Jews. We're not, we don't actually come in contact with anybody else. And she says, I guess there must be Gentiles here, but they they must live in other places, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and she 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 calls him out for like, you're so provincial. You're still the same person. You're still so provincial, right? Mm. And I think she makes a good point. And that's something that, the, you know, the film is takes place in this closed world of the Lower East Side, except for the one excursion to, the to you know, what's ostensibly Central Park. But even Central Park, there's no one else around. It's just them. And, you know, it was these people experienced serious barriers to their acculturation. I think that's lacking in the film. You don't actually meet any anti-Semitic Gentiles. You don't actually meet the people who were, you know, later on as American Jews become more of the fabric of America. You could not join a country club if you were Jewish. You could not. So they made their own country clubs. That's the, that's the, the, the advent of these Catskill hotels, right? Hmm. These places where people could get away to because they could not be members of country clubs and things like that. Right. They experienced, Jews in America experienced barriers to Americanization for a long time and really only began to change I would say in the 60s. It went on for a very long time. And that's lacking from the film. And I think it's a really important perspective that we have to keep in mind when we think about the challenges of Americanization. It's not just, you know, do I give up my religiosity and my tradition or do I, you know, wholeheartedly embrace Americanisms? It's also, what will America allow me to do? And like I say, there's there's a push and a pull between how much America embraces people and how much they kind of were forced to create their own sort of micro civilization within within the greater America because they just were not they were precluded for so much of what America had to offer. I think those are points are both very well put. Miriam, this has been really great. I feel like I have learned a ton about the history of Yiddish in America, the Jewish immigration to America. This has been a I think a really interesting interview. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Do you have anything you'd like to share with the audience in terms of projects you're working on or, you know, your social media that you'd like to share or anything like that. Yeah. And I want to say, Lewis, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. It's really fun to talk about this stuff and kind of explore the worlds, the worlds of the past. Yeah. Especially through a film like this. It's been really, really, it's been, it's been a hoot. So thank you so much. Yeah. So if you're interested in more specifically Ontario based Yiddish history, every week on Instagram, I post a Yiddish word of the week, hashtag Yiddish word of the week for the Ontario Jewish Archives Instagram account. The word that I choose every week is always based on some actual document or a photograph. So there's something, you know, concrete to hold on to. So you can check that out. That's every Friday. And I also have an Instagram account called Bicherchik. Bicher in Yiddish means books. Bookchik. B-I-K-H-E-R underscore chick. C-H-I-C-K. And that is where I post just beautiful details and illustrations and all kinds of things from the world of Yiddish books. Often these are books I just have in my own personal collection that I like to leaf through and sort of pick out, you know, beautiful 
historiated initials or some, you know, gold edged pages or marbled end papers, things like that. Just things that are beautiful little features of Yiddish publishing. So you can check out all that stuff. Um, yeah, on Instagram. Fantastic. Yeah, I encourage everyone to to check out both of those accounts. Check out what you're doing over there. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. That's all for today's interview. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Miriam for taking the time to speak with me. If you'd like to learn more about the history of Jewish immigration to the United States or the Yiddish language, check the description for some reading recommendations. I've also collected some interesting historical photos and artwork related to Jewish American life and culture from this time period, and put them up on the show's Facebook and Instagram pages, including some interesting documents written in Yiddish, so check those out. We're at Off Campus History on both sites. If you want to support the podcast, it really helps me out if you recommend it to someone you know. Personal recommendations are really valuable for growing the audience. If you'd like to leave a review for the show on the Apple Podcasts page, that also helps a lot. If you'd like to send me any comments about this or other episodes, leave a comment on one of our social media pages or send me an email at offcampushistory at gmail.com. I'm also happy to hear suggestions for future episode topics and to hear from historians who are interested in appearing on a future episode. Music for the podcast is by Paul B.S. and his Novelty Orchestra, and artwork for the podcast was made by Neth Karia. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for some more off-campus history. Music